Women's roles, women's rights, and women's identities in our culture are constantly shifting. This is Unsettled Womanhood, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio dedicated to conversations about different aspects of womanhood and what it means to be a woman today. I'm Charity Nebbe. On this episode, we're exploring the reproductive responsibilities of women and others who menstruate, and we're starting with periods. It's the hard knock life for us. For many of us, period education started in fourth grade with a film. Here is an excerpt from the film I watched with my classmates in 1984. It's called Growing Up on Broadway and features the cast of Annie. Here they are breaking down some common menstrual myths. Things get passed down, and a lot of them are untrue. Like you're gonna My have... grandmother tells me not to wash my hair when I have it, but I do anyway. You should so wash your hair. You never get moody? My mother tells me I get moody. I say I'm not moody. <laughs> yes, you are. There are also myths that every, when you get your period, you're automatically going to have cramps. You're going to be oh. cranky. You're going to have oily hair, which is not true because I don't get any of them. I don't get moody. I don't have cramps. I get and moody. if I That's do, I exercise and they disappear. Yeah. Which So exercise is good. Oh, oh yeah. And yeah. it's different for everybody. Some people may get cramps and some people may not. A girl's first period is a rite of passage, welcome and anticipated by some and dreaded by others. But it marks a new phase of life that will last for 40 years or so. From that moment on, girls and women are responsible for managing their monthly cycles and the knowledge that sexual intercourse can result in a pregnancy. We will talk more about reproduction later in the hour, but right now, it's all about periods. On January 1st, 2023, Iowa eliminated sales tax on menstrual products, but period poverty can be a real challenge. When Manya Pandey, who grew up in Waukee, Iowa, learned about period poverty back in 2020, she decided to do something about it. She founded Love for Red, a nonprofit dedicated to ending period poverty. She is now a student at the University of Iowa, and Love for Red continues to grow. And she is with me now. Hello, Manya. Hi. So take me back in time. When did this start for you? Yeah, so I started Love for Red my sophomore year. But before that, my mom had told me about her experiences with menstruation when she lived in India. And so she did not grow up in an unprivileged area. She grew up in a very privileged, well-educated area and family, but she still dealt with struggles with her period. And I never realized that women went through this issue here as well. And when I was 15, during my sophomore year of high school, I saw an Instagram post about women in prisons and the struggles that they go through as a result of not having enough menstrual products. And that's what triggered the kind of exploration into period poverty and period product and accessibility. And when we say period poverty, what does it mean? Yeah, so period poverty is the inaccessibility of menstrual products and education. And not only just that, it's also having a safe place to deal with your period. So women who can't afford menstrual products, they don't know anything about their period or don't know certain things about menstruation or the reproductive cycle, or they don't have a place where they can have their period safely and with dignity. That's pretty much what period poverty is. And I can imagine when you saw that information about women in prison dealing with a lack of menstrual products and resources, 
that probably felt pretty far away from your personal experience. So when you started thinking about it in terms of your classmates and other high school students in the United States, what did you find? Yeah, so actually when we started, we started with organizations that dealt or not dealt with, but they served low income and underserved areas. And that was where we found a really big kind of community that needed menstrual products. But at the same time, I was also a high school student. And I wasn't really thinking about the fact that there were times when I went to the bathroom and there were not any menstrual products or they were in the coin machines where you need to put quarters and take one out. And And Gen Z does not have coins. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Especially not middle schoolers or high schoolers, like let alone carrying around cash. They're not carrying around coins. And so my senior year, this was when I went back to school after COVID because junior year and sophomore year were both online. And I had started it my sophomore year. So this was the first time that I was back in school, like doing this work. So we decided to see if donating to schools would be something that's going to work out. So we donated to Waukee High School. And Waukee High School is a pretty privileged school district. The students that go there, the majority of them can afford menstrual products. So we were surprised when we realized that we have to keep donating. And we currently donate to every single one of Waukee's middle school and high schools. And we continue to donate to all of them. And we also donate to around five other school districts in Iowa. And I mean, speaking about Waukee, obviously, it's it's not a monolithic school district. There are certainly people in need who live in Waukee and, and go to schools. But I feel like just thinking about financial need doesn't cover students' relationships to menstrual products because it's not just about money. It's about preparation. It's about not being embarrassed to ask. It's about bad timing sometimes, right? Absolutely. So when we donate menstrual products, we really urge schools to keep them in the bathrooms because you can have menstrual products, but if they're in the nurse's office or, for example, at the University of Iowa, they're at the front desks of the residence halls. No one wants to go down the elevator or in the hallway during passing period to get a menstrual product if they're on their period. It makes you feel like an inconvenience that your menstrual cycle is not supposed to be something that's getting in the way, but something you're supposed to hide and deal with. And it's getting in the way of your education. Well, and there's been research that has shown this. So I was looking at a study published in the Journal of School Nursing in 2021, and they did a survey of high school students in St. Louis, and they found that nearly two-thirds of high school students surveyed reported period product insecurity during the school year. Over two-thirds of participants reported missing school at least one day each month for reasons related to their periods. And this one is even more disturbing, that 26.7% of the students they surveyed reported being disciplined for something related to their period. So that's probably a, a school tardy or something like that that's related to needing to take care of yourself. Absolutely, yeah. Periods are seen as something that you have to deal with on your own. It's not something that women are empowered to deal with or or are like known that they can that a period is something that happens to everyone. And it's something that you can't control. And there's not that grace given to people with periods. 
Now, you mentioned um, working on making period products available, menstrual products available to people who are in underserved communities. And that's an important conversation, too, because although the state of Iowa joined many other states with getting rid of tax on menstrual products, that dates back to the first of this year, you can't purchase these products with SNAP or WIC benefits. So that's something that has to come out of the monthly or the weekly budget. Absolutely. Because while there's they got rid of the monetary inaccessibility, there's still the physical inaccessibility. Women aren't able to get the menstrual products that they need. So how does Love for Red help? Yeah, so Love for Red works to fight period poverty through service, advocacy, and awareness. And so with service, we're donating menstrual products to people in places in need, but that kind of just alleviates the problem. It's not finding a long-term solution. And so something that we do is advocacy. So this February, we had our first day on the Hill where we went to legislators at the Iowa State Capitol in Des Moines, and we advocated for free menstrual product access. And that's pretty much the way that we're going to get that physical accessibility in Iowa, and we want to get those in schools that is Left for Red's goal right now is to get free menstrual products in schools so students can have academic success without their period being the thing that's stopping them. You are in a number of school districts right now. How many districts? About five. When you approached these districts, did you meet with any resistance? Yes, I would say not resistance in getting the products, but resistance in supporting us to support them. So we donate, like I said, to all of Waukee's schools. So there is a need in their schools for these menstrual products. And we have asked to support us if because we also don't have a constant stream of funding. Something that Left 4 Ed wants to do is expand and donate to more schools. And currently we have about 55 schools and organizations on our waiting list. And we only serve about 35 So there are more schools and organizations that need menstrual products than we're able to even support. So we need support, and that's something that a lot of school boards are not giving us. Um, They say that they, they can do it on their own, but then they're not taking the initiative to do it on their own. So we are still continuing to support, and we would love to continue to support, but we also need the support back to help their students. When I was growing up in the 1980s, Talking about periods outside of a a circle of close female friends was just not done. It was super embarrassing. It was really uncomfortable. I'm sure that that's the way that it is often today. But it also feels like there's been a shift where this is something that is coming out of the shadows. Do you feel that? I would say that periods, there's more of an empowerment behind them now. I think the period poverty movement Although it's not the biggest thing right now, it's definitely growing. And I think I think in the like, near future, having a period will not be something that has a shameful connotation. And I really hope it's something that everyone can talk about without that shame, without getting uncomfortable and thinking it's dirty or unclean or impure. Because it is, it's one of the only blood that's shed without violence. So... I think it's something that it's natural. It's a natural bodily process. It's what creates life, and it's something that should be celebrated. What are your future plans for Love for Red? 
for La Fourette. So I like to say that La Fourette has grown and changed as I have. So when we started off, we just started in Des Moines. And as I've gone to college in Iowa City, we now have an Iowa City team. And I hope to go to medical school to be an OBGYN. So I hope it grows into something related to medicine as well. But I hope we grow in a way where we can impact every place in Iowa that needs menstrual products. Manya Pandey, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Manya Pandey is the founder of Love for Red, a nonprofit organization dedicated to ending period poverty. More on reproductive responsibilities to come. This is Unsettled from IPR News. How lovely to be a woman. The wait was well worthwhile. How lovely to wear mascara and smile a woman's smile. How lovely to have a... This is Unsettled from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. On this episode, the reproductive responsibilities of women and others who menstruate. In a few minutes... I'll talk with an obstetrician and gynecologist about medical care and the physical aspects of reproduction. Later on, a sociologist will help us understand how fertility treatments, pregnancy, and motherhood affect women economically. Right now, the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade has changed the landscape of reproductive rights in our country and here in Iowa. Access or lack of access to health care in Iowa is also a very important part of this picture when we think about reproductive responsibilities of women. So here to help us navigate is our health reporter, IPR's Natalie Krebs. Hello, Natalie. Hello, Charity. All right, Natalie, let's start with family planning and specifically with birth control. There has been an effort in Iowa to make birth control more accessible. Tell me about that. Right. This has been something that's been going on here in Iowa, um, particularly for Governor Kim Reynolds. She's been trying to expand what you call behind-the-counter birth control access. So not over-the-counter, behind-the-counter. It's just having this statewide standing order, this open prescription for all Iowans who are 18 and older to be able to go get birth control from a pharmacist without first seeing a doctor. That didn't pass the legislature last year, um, which is majority Republican, which most people know because this issue actually divides Republicans, particularly those who are anti-abortion, those who are more faith-leaning. There are a couple of prominent groups that oppose this measure, um, so that wasn't able to get through. Yeah, Yeah, we'll talk more in a few minutes about some of the challenges to getting health care, particularly in rural areas of Iowa. But that's certainly an issue that affects people's access to birth control as well. If it's hard to get to a doctor, it's hard to get that prescription for birth control. And of course, for young people, there could also be some extra challenges there. I, I want to now talk about abortion care, because as I mentioned, the U.S. Supreme Court had their Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, and that has allowed states all over the country to change abortion access in their states. Iowa, right now, abortion is still legal up to 20 weeks after conception or 22 weeks after the last menstrual period. Where does that stand? Right. This can be so confusing. So currently, once again, you're right, Charity, um, abortion is legal in Iowa up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. People might be thinking they've seen a lot of headlines that contradict that. That's because the state legislature during a special session this July passed a bill that would effectively 
ban abortion at six weeks of pregnancy. Um, That law is currently going through the courts. We saw a district judge issue a temporary injunction that bars that from going into effect. As that moves through the court system, we'll go up to the Supreme Court, and ultimately we'll see what they rule on that. To make things more confusing, I'll elaborate on this for a second. You did see another ban that's basically identical to this one. The state Supreme Court struck down basically the same six-week ban that had been a 2018 law this year. Um, The reason you're seeing it go through again is after that, or once, right before that Dobbs decision came out in 2022, the Iowa Supreme Court actually issued its own ruling saying abortion isn't protected by the state constitution, which is what allowed Republican lawmakers this session to pass virtually the same law, which is now going through the Supreme Court again. (laughs) All right. So wait and see on that. But in the meantime, abortion is still legal up to 20 weeks. There are restrictions that had passed the legislature before. Iowans have to wait 24 hours before getting an abortion. So that means that they have to make two appointments, right? Right. And that that was a 2020 law that was going through the courts, but that was able to go into effect last year. Um, And yeah, so it requires Iowans who are seeking an abortion to make two appointments. They have to go into one appointment for an ultrasound, and then they have to wait 24 hours to actually go through the abortion procedure. So when a woman does get pregnant, she needs prenatal care. How difficult is that for a woman to access in Iowa? Yeah, this is an ongoing issue as well. Just the maternity care desert issue. Um, We're seeing more and more hospitals close their OB units. That's been a really long running issue, basically between, you know, Medicaid reimbursement rates and just lack of providers. And that just being a really costly service that struggling hospitals can't afford, which essentially means less prenatal care, period. Um, There's a general provider shortage in Iowa. And so you see, you know, counties where there's really truly maternity deserts. There's just very few people available to provide that prenatal care that women need, which, you know, that means that people, women end up traveling, you know, long distances in order to get to prenatal appointments or get the decent care that they need. And that's even harder if you have some kind of high-risk pregnancy. Well, and there are a lot of prenatal appointments. It's been a while since I've had a baby, but I know I went once a month until I went once a week. So there were a lot yeah. and lot of appointments. So when when you're pregnant you and you need to travel to get that prenatal care, I'm sure a lot of women miss it or, or have less frequent visits. But also the cost of traveling, that commitment to time, the time off work, that's significant. Right, exactly, Charity. I mean, this echoes all kinds of care, but yeah, you're right, particularly prenatal care. Um, women, you know, have to take time off work, and then it, it can be hard to get to those appointments, and especially lower-income women, it's just easier to skip those appointments rather than kind of go through the cost of having to drive for that care. And and once again, if you have a high-risk pregnancy that requires more care, it's even more dangerous. Those appointments are even more important. Does the state have a plan to make prenatal care, to make maternal care more accessible? 
Well, there's a lot of talk about the OBGYN shortage in the state. Um, Iowa has one of the fewest OBGYNs per capita in the country. A lot of talk has been about creating more residency slots. The idea being if, you know, med students come here or they, they train to be OBGYNs in the state, they'll stay. That's kind of a, a running narrative for med students in general that they stay where they train or they're more likely to. Um we're going to go back to abortion on this because there's been a lot of concern that abortion bans, particularly in states, we've seen this in states that have already banned abortion, really deter med students, recent med student graduates from going to states to that have banned abortion to train for OBGYN, given that they can't kind of do the full scope of the training that they need, given that abortion care is part of, you know, their OBGYN training. Right. And and just a reminder that, of course, abortion care can be necessary for the safety of a mother. It can be me- necessary for multiple reasons that are not just choice. Right. Exactly. You're exactly right, Charity. And again, that's why it's, it's you know, the leading ACOG, like the American College of obstetrician and gynecologists, you know, have really said this is a very, very important part of OBGYN's training. It's it's not just elective abortion. It goes far beyond that. It's this huge gray area of healthcare and women who have complicated pregnancies have, you know, health issues that would require them to go through this procedure. Now, at the same time, we do see, for example, um, Attorney General Brenna Byrd has announced a fundraiser for anti-abortion centers and for crisis pregnancy centers. And so those are places where women who are pregnant can turn, but they don't offer the full spectrum of care. Right. This has been kind of a long-running issue, too. I mean, uh, Attorney General Brenna Byrd is is very conservative. She has a very anti-abortion stance, and that's reflected kind of in these fundraisers she's doing. Um, A lot of debate over these crisis pregnancy centers. They're not federally regulated centers. Um, They're not centers that are required to be staffed by medical professionals. Um, They're more often, most often, run by faith organizations, almost 100% of the time, so faith-based organizations. And, you know, in the past, there's they've been accused of sending out misinformation or basically, you know, telling people misinformation to try to deter abortions. So, you know, Attorney General Byrd has done a fundraiser for this as part of her anti-abortion stance. They're just very controversial centers. Well, we will continue watching as things unfold. And Natalie, thank you so much for keeping us up to date. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, Charity. IPR's health reporter, Natalie Krebs. And what are you here for today, Barbara? I'm here to see my gynecologist. This hour on Talk of Iowa, we're talking about the reproductive responsibilities of women. Dr. Deborah Turner has cared for and guided many women through many challenges through her career as a gynecologic oncologist. She practiced in Davenport, Mason City, and Des Moines. She left active practice in 2015 and retired as the Associate Medical Director of Planned Parenthood of North Central States in 2022. Dr. Turner, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's delightful to be able to talk with you today. Now, reproductive health care 
is important for women, regardless of whether or not they intend to reproduce. Tell me a little bit about why gynecological care is so essential. Gynecologic care is critical because it basically, as a woman, it follows you all your life from the very beginning when you begin your menses and even understanding that before up until the last days of your life. There are the days when you are have, you're able to reproduce or have children, then the days after. And it's critical to have access to care, adequate care, and good care throughout that lifespan because it can change your life, your family's life, and the life of your children or offspring also. It's very critical. When you say access to adequate care, what does that mean? That means that a woman should have the ability or the right or the access to have someone who can provide specific gynecologic care or obstetrical care within a reasonable distance. If you look at Iowa, it's very interesting. You know, the big topic right now is about maternal health care and access to it and how hard it is or how difficult it is to get somewhere for a delivery or obstetrics care. Well, that goes hand in hand with regular gynecologic care, too. In Iowa, 35.4% of our counties are considered what we call uh, maternal care deserts, or I like to say uh, basically women health care deserts. That means that they don't have a person that specializes or has extra training in obstetrics and gynecology within their county. Wow. And yeah, and we can say, well, that's okay. You can just drive a couple counties away. And they say, look at the average. It's only 11 miles to the nearest obstetrics or gynecology in average in Iowa. But that happens to be if you live in one of the, you know, larger communities or well-serviced counties. If not, you know, you may drive a half hour, an hour, or even further just to get care. And if you're in an emergency situation or you have limited time, which women do, how often are they going to be able to do that? And we don't take that into account when we're talking about the care that women really need and deserve because their families need it too. This is a family thing. It's not just about the individual woman also. Well, and, and we mentioned maternal care. When a woman is pregnant, she is probably more inclined to jump through some hoops to get the kind of care that she may need, although I know that that is an incredible challenge for a lot of women, and there can be extenuating circumstances. For your more routine gynecologic care, there's probably not as much of an incentive to make it happen if you really have to travel. Right. And that's when we see people ignore their yearly examinations, not get their pap smear. And then three years, they may get it in 10 years, not get their breast exam, not get their mammogram. It all becomes part of how you take care of yourself to be a healthy woman. And it's something thing, unless you have a problem, then you ignore it. And one thing about almost every medical disease that there is, the earlier or disorder, whatever it may be, including pregnancy, which is not a disease or disorder, get me straight here, that the earlier you are seen, the more likely you're going to have a good outcome. So that's why, like, for example, in maternal situations, it is really critical to have prenatal care from the beginning all the way through. You're going to have the best outcome for you and your offspring. If you have an abnormal pap smear, you need care right away so that you don't end up in five, 10 years with an invasive cancer that could have been treated earlier. So those things are critical, but we put them off because we sometimes feel like, well, they're not absolutely necessary because it's going to take extra time. It's going to take extra money. And women tend to sometimes ignore themselves. And I'm here to say, 
you have to definitely put yourself, sometimes you have to put yourself first so that you can be good for the rest of your family and your community. I want to talk a little bit more about maternal mortality. But before Mm -hmm. we do that, let's talk about birth control, because birth control, obviously an essential part of many women's lives. It is also an area where there has been a rapid expansion of possibilities, of choices that women can make if they have the information to make those choices. I mean, it feels like there's there's kind of been an explosion since, you know, I was in my early 20s. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the options out there are really far expanded, amazing. You know, you have what we call LARCs, which are long-acting reversible, and they talk about, you hear the terms, an implant, for example. Or you can do IUDs that are long, long-acting. Or you can have all different forms of pills, and you have vaginal rings, and you have caps. It's amazing. But you, one, you have to have access. But more importantly, we have to have the information that's correct so a woman can make the right choice. And many times, it's the lack of the training or the understanding of what each choice means. And that's where actually one of the best things that happening is, you know, telemedicine really helps with that. Because many times you can get online with a provider, and they can explain the different options for you. And if it's something that doesn't need a visit, maybe they can handle it online. But if it's not, then they can set you up to have a visit, assuming that you need to go to a clinic to get that taken care of. But there are a lot of options, but they're not all cheap either. I mean, we would that it would all be free, but it's not. Birth control pills, if you don't have insurance, can cost you 30 to $50 or more a year. If you don't have insurance, an IUD may cost you over $1,000, and an implant runs somewhere in between there. So this is not exactly medically or economically accessible. That's the other piece we have to remember, the economics of it. Well, and there can be health consequences to different Mm -hmm. kinds of birth control as well. I mean, there are a lot of options, but not every option is right for everybody, and most of them come with a long list of possible side effects. Absolutely. And understanding those side effects and how they affect you are really critical. And that's why, you know, it's like it's really great to think that you can maybe just go out and buy a pack of birth control pills somewhere, which that's fine if we make it that accessible. But you have to understand, is this the right thing for you? Is it the safe thing for you? We see all kinds of women come in with side effects from the birth control method that they've chosen. And then we have to reassess and change or help them work through the problems. So if up front you get a better idea of this is the best thing for you, because some of those side effects can be really critical and can really hamper you in your life, cause you problems. I'm talking with Dr. Deborah Turner. She is an OBGYN and practiced for many years as a gynecologic oncologist and educator. She retired from active practice in 2015 and was Associate Medical Director of Planned Parenthood of North Central States through 2022. We will continue our conversation in a moment. This is Unsettled from IPR News. Don't you worry, Nana, cause mama's got the pill. Daddy, don't you worry, Nana, cause mama's got the pill. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Unsettled from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. 
Throughout this season, we're exploring different aspects of womanhood. Right now, we're talking about the reproductive responsibilities of women. My guest is Dr. Deborah Turner. She's an OBGYN and retired from active practice in 2015. She was Associate Medical Director of Planned Parenthood of North Central States through 2022. And Dr. Turner, before the break, we were talking about birth control decisions. When a woman does become pregnant or chooses to pursue fertility treatments, wants to reproduce, there are a lot of things to consider. A woman's age, her circumstances, other health concerns, these are all part of that equation. So even before becoming pregnant, this is a time when health care is essential, right? Right. We really encourage women to have a prenatal uh, visit with a doc. Sit down with your provider and talk about, you know, I want to get pregnant. What are the things I should look at? This is my health. What are the options for me or not? What things do I have to be worried about? What's my family history? Put all that together and make kind of a pregnancy plan. When is the best time for me to try to conceive, which is the best way, you know, and that it makes a lot of difference in your pregnancy, too. And a lot of women don't have time for that. It's like, oops, I got pregnant, and now I'm kind of starting. I hopefully have time to get to early appointments. But it's really great if you have a, a provider. It doesn't have to be a doctor. Any healthcare provider that you trust and has the knowledge can help you work through that and make a pregnancy plan. It's a great idea and will make a lot of difference in the outcomes of pregnancies also. Well, and then to make healthy choices as mm-hmm. you are growing a child as well, if you choose to, to right. be pregnant and carry a child mm-hmm. to term. Um, let's talk about maternal mortality in the United States, because maternal mortality has been increasing in the United States. I have statistics from the CDC that say that the maternal mortality rate for 2021 was 32.9 deaths per 100,000 live births. And that went up because the rate in 2020 was 238 Eight. Tell me your response to that. This, uh, what's going on in this industrialized nation of ours? Right. You would think that it would be getting going the other way, and it should be. A couple things are going on. One, as we talked about a little bit earlier, the maternity care deserts, where the people who have the knowledge to take care of folks are not where they're needed. And two, that there are really things that matters where you live. And so the issues surrounding if you're from a rural community, community for example, or for a community that's outside a really populized uh, metropolitan area, you're less likely to get adequate care because you can't, don't have access. But also if you're in a large uh, metropolitan area and you don't have transportation or you don't have a clinic accessible to you, so that's another piece. The other piece is financial in that so we see the mortality rate during both for the mothers and babies increases if you're from rural areas, if you have less financial means. And quite frankly, it also kind of relates to your education level because you haven't had the opportunity to be, you know, to learn and know the things that can help you make better choices and have a healthier life. But we really need to, I think it's time that we really started looking at let's spend our medical health care dollars where they need to be spent. And that's on our folks who have less access and where maybe you're not getting your providers as excited to go to those areas. I always think in Iowa, the great thing is to grow your own. And so if communities say, okay, we need a provider in this region and in this specialty, 
find some in their community or in their surrounding community that really wants to do that, help finance their way through school, help finance their way through training, and say, you agree to come back and give us service, you know. And it's amazing how well that works. There are a lot of our uh, Western states that do that, and they're very successful with that. So I'm kind of a grow-your-own kind girl. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's all, this is also a social justice issue as well. Mm-hmm. Um, nationwide, black mothers are three times more likely to die than white mothers giving birth. In Iowa, black mothers are six times more likely to die giving birth than white mothers. It, it's such a shocking statistic. I'm sure that there are many women who think, no, it doesn't shock me at all. I, that's really hard to, to read. It's hard to think about. Yeah. Well, you know, and it has to do with when we talk about access, we talk about finances, we talk about where you live, but also it's, it's on medical providers too, because we have really things we need to work with within our own selves to make sure that we're treating every patient equitably. You know, those old, what people think are wife's tales, like, well, the concept that if you're a African-American mother, you know, you don't have as much pain or your pain's not as significant. That's not true. But that's really a belief of many providers. It's really amazing when you start doing these surveys. And sometimes uh, women of color or women of lower economic means don't get the attention of women who are majority and or of higher economic means. It's, it's really a bias. There's so much implicit bias in delivering medical care. And then on the patient side, sometimes they're afraid to ask for what they want or they need, or they don't trust what their providers tell them because they've had somebody else that's had a bad outcome. So we have two sides of this that really need to work. But I think the medical community really looks needs to look at themselves and figure out how can we do this better. It also returns to your let's grow our own Mm-hmm. philosophy, because if we can invest more in providers of color, that's going to create more equity. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the interesting thing about that is saying if you invest more in providers of color, that doesn't mean that every provider of color that gets trained and goes out there is necessarily going to serve in a community they came from unless they are obligated. But most of them will. But that also means I felt as a medical when I was teaching in the medical schools and that, that my presence was as important to my students of color as it was to my majority students at that time who were white, in that they saw that people of color could be in these roles and practice and be great physicians or whatever as well. So this is a way of making sure that you're, that others understand that Physicians of color have the adequate training and are equally capable as physicians who aren't of color. And I think that is a real piece, too. In your practice of gynecologic oncology, I'm sure that you saw women at all stages of life. Um, Before we let you go, this reproductive responsibility we're talking about, it doesn't end with the end of your reproductive years. I mean, women go through perimenopause. They go through menopause. And they continue to live in this body. What do you think we need to think about as women age to provide them with the kind of care that they really need? Well, I think one thing we need to think about is letting people or letting women know that their care is needed beyond their years of reproduction, okay? And that 
sometimes we say, well, you're now perimenopause or menopause, and what you do there, you don't really need gynecologic care, or because we don't recommend you do a pap smear, you don't need to be checked. That's not true. And what really struck me, I worked in Wisconsin, uh, Medical College of Wisconsin for several years, and as I was there, I noticed there was this incredible increase of women I've seen with a stage four, a disease called endometrial cancer, cancer of the uterus. It's uh, one of the cancers that's increasing in, in the country that is kind of under the radar screen. And that's the disease that happens from perimenopause and on. And the reason was because women started not getting exams and because they didn't understand the importance of what postmenopausal bleeding means. So people, I found that the women really weren't understanding the meaning of postmenopausal bleeding. This was this concept of that if I bleed a little bit after menopause or my bleeding's a little bit irregular, that's okay. It'll just eventually go away. And if it's only a little spot, it doesn't mean anything. Or I'm flooding because it's my menopause. No. If you pick up on postmenopausal bleeding immediately when it happens and you see a provider, you can prevent endometrial cancer from advancing in, in many, many women. We could almost eliminate endometrial cancer if people were aware of this. And it's once again comes to education, but it also comes to making and letting women know that they are as important and their gynecologic health is important from the day they're born to the day they die. And I really truly believe that because as a gynecologic oncologist, most of my patients as cancer patients were perimenopausal or menopausal. So uh, it's really critical. We need to put ourselves first, okay? <laughs> it's as simple as that. Dr. Deborah Turner, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you for having me. This has been delightful, and I hope it's helpful. Dr. Deborah Turner. Now, Title VII prohibits discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions. And yet, we cannot ignore that with reproductive responsibilities resting overwhelmingly on the shoulders of women, there are consequences in the workplace. Mary Noonan is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Iowa. She researches gender inequality at the workplace. Mary, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And Mary, we're going to dig more deeply into your research on our next show when we focus on women's roles in the workplace and at home. But today, in the few minutes we have, uh, with the legal protections that women have, why is it still important to understand how our reproductive responsibilities can affect our work life? Well, the main way reproductive responsibilities affect women's work lives is through having children. There's something called the motherhood penalty um, that many sociologists have studied, and it equates to about 5 to 10% per child that a woman has with respect to her earnings going down. And there is no um, law that says that there is uh, we can't discriminate against parents in the U.S. We also don't have any federal paid leave in the United States for mothers or fathers. And so women especially are kind of stuck with trying to find ways to combine work and family that uh, – there are all sorts of challenges. Right. The Family Medical Leave Act allows us 12 weeks, but unpaid. Right. And you can only get it if you have been working at a company for at least one year, and the company has to be decent in size, 50 people or more. There are so many different elements to reproductive responsibility, as we've been talking about this hour. I mean, pregnancy, of course, is the thing that leaps to mind. But women have a lot of economic responsibilities for their reproductive health. 
Right. So um, your earlier caller talked about menstruation. That um, can lead to women needing to take time off from work because of um, bad mood, um, hormonal imbalances, uh, fatigue, uh, difficulty with sleeping. Um, you can go on and on. Then there's miscarriages that women face, stillbirths um, that some women have to struggle with. Um, many women want to become pregnant and have a difficult time doing so. So infertile women often go through many years trying to become pregnant. Um, and so you're right, pregnancy and breastfeeding are things that the workplace has tackled. But um, the things that I mentioned, as well as menopause, um, can affect women's productivity at work. Um, specifically through, um, you know, the ability to concentrate, put in a strong effort at work um, and needing to take time off. Being more open about our needs may seem like that could be a positive thing. However, talking about your health needs in the workplace, particularly talking about things that have to do with your reproductive health, there's a real taboo on that and, and maybe with good reason. Right. So um, Britain has kind of taken uh, taken charge with um, uh, promoting menopausal policies at work, and they call it menopause-friendly workplaces. And I was doing some reading about this over the last few weeks, and um, many people think that that's actually a bad thing because they feel that by promoting a women's needs, employers may be less willing to hire women, um, more likely to not give them challenging projects because they can't handle it. So you're right. There is kind of a taboo um, that if you need extra support, if you need uh, extra time off because of your body, that employers will use that as a reason to discriminate against women. Right, which we have seen historically. Right. Um, we also talked to throughout this hour quite a bit about OBGYN deserts, you know, places where you just can't get the health care you need, at least not within a, a reasonable distance. So having to take more time, even if you are pursuing health care, having to take more time to travel to and from those appointments can also have a huge cost at work. Absolutely. So, I mean, there's the, the financial, direct financial costs of these various um, reproductive issues, but then there's the indirect financial costs, needing to take time off of work, the mental load of having to think about these things, whether you're trying to prevent pregnancy or you're trying to become pregnant. Um, just going to the appointments themselves, the travel time, the commuting time, um, again, the mental effort and energy to plan it out. And then in some cases, like with mis miscarriage or abortion, there might be, um, you know, mental uh, mental consequences uh, with respect to grief, etc., that one needs to deal with. And all of these things can uh, affect women's productivity and performance at work to the point where, um, you know, they may pass up certain challenging work opportunities because they don't feel like they have that kind of focus or commitment to um, yeah. to devote. And I don't want to paint a, a, an incredibly bleak picture. I love being a woman. I feel incredibly privileged that I was able to give birth to two human beings and, and raise them. So, I mean, obviously, there are some really wonderful things about having this reproductive responsibility. But let's talk in just the minute that we have left. Can you give me any hope when we look at, at progress? I mean, uh, of course, I remember when the Family Medical Leave Act passed back in the 90s. 
Are we making any progress? Is there hope of progress? Yeah. I mean, if you look at um, attitudinal surveys that ask Americans, do you think we should have paid family leave in the United States? 80 to 90 percent say yes. So hopefully we will get paid family leave in the future. And um, I think more workplaces are realizing that if they want to hire and retain committed, devoted women to the workplace, they need to make changes that accommodate women's bodies um, in ways that they perhaps haven't in the past. And so I think uh, there's definitely hope for the future and um, that these concessions um, actually make uh, their employees more productive and better, uh, happier at work, etc. And so um, they're not costs in the long run. And support for the partners of these women, if they want to be more engaged and involved, having that workplace support for them also helps the women too. Absolutely. So uh, New Zealand recently passed a uh, miscarriage leave law that allows either woman or man to take up to five days paid leave um, after a miscarriage, right? So it encourages men to become more involved. Mary Noonan, thank you so much for being here. And we will talk a great deal more tomorrow. Okay, thank you. Mary Noonan is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Iowa. She researches gender inequality in the workplace, and she will be back on our next episode when we talk about women and labor in the workplace and at home. Unsettled is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Samantha McIntosh, Danny Gear, and Caitlin Troutman. Our production assistants are Maddie Willis and Kate Perez. And our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. We get digital support from Matt Sierran and Josie Fishels and technical support from the IPR Broadcast Operations Team. I'm Charity Nebbe. <laughs> <laughs>